Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Well, we are back here on the Mets Up Podcast, episode number 12 of Coast. Of course, you got your co-hosts. We're off to a hot start. I already screwed up. You guys aren't going to hear it, but I said, of coast, and that's just not what I meant to say. <laughs> so you just said it twice. You said they weren't going to hear it. Yeah, well, now they hear it because I need to let them know. But we got the co-hosts here, Draftneck Mark, Mark Luino, Jeter had no range on Twitter, James Shiano, to talk about Mets baseball. We've had a pretty rambunctious and rowdy week uh, going on in New York Mets baseball. A lot of games going on. We had four games in the Cardinals series, which is nice because there is actually a pretty good, decent amount to talk about. Some good, some bad. We have the first shakeup of the coaching staff. Chili Davis has been canned along with Tom Slater. Yeah. Slayton. I don't know who this guy is. I know the last name was Slater, so it counts. All that we know is that Donnie Stevenson is still around. He hasn't been canned, so that's always a good sign. We talked about him in the last episode. He was a big reason as to why the Mets were able to get some more runs on the board. And while this wasn't necessarily the cleanest series, there is some positive things to take out of the games that we've seen from the Mets. And of course, as they've done all year long, they've pitched really well, which is fantastic to see because, of course, that was probably one of our biggest concerns going into the year. But we've got four games to talk about, the Chili Davis news, as well as previewing the Arizona Diamondback series. You guys know where to find us on all our social media, Metsed Up, on Twitter and Instagram, posting a lot of great things over there. And make sure you're listening to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. And if you want to watch, we're back on YouTube, youtube.com, search Metsed Up Podcast. You'll find the video form there. James, that was a lengthy intro. Yeah, I was going to say, you went to a lot of content before you gave our social handles. That was the first time all year you've done that. You know, we're, we're building the intro here. We're trying to become a little more professional. I've been listening to some more podcasts myself, and I'm, I'm learning what they're doing, learning the craft here. But I'm, I'm ready to just get talking into Mets baseball. I'm sure you are, too. Yeah, let's do it, brother. I mean, this was a jam-packed four days of just stuff. These are It's just a lot of things happen on the field, off the field, in in between the lines, outside the lines. I'm ready to get right into game one. Which game one is weird again, just another weird game. This is kind of what the whole series felt like was a little weird. Lucchese. Lucchese, I think, is where we kind of have to start it. Definitely. Lucchese is someone I was outspokenly worried about preseason. And while I think the Mets haven't really handled him the right way, he's just he's just not very good. He's just, I think our fears, or I should really just say your fears about Lucchese were a hundred percent correct in that his stuff just isn't that great. And as we've said multiple times on this, like even from the start, we both agreed. I think that Lucchese shouldn't see the lineup more than once. He's got to be an opener. Definitely. During the second time through the lineup last game, when uh, game one, when it started to get a little bit dicey, Gary said out loud to Keith, he wondered if Lucchese needed a third pitch, and I laughed out loud sitting on my couch. Like, no shit, this guy needs a third pitch. It's unbelievable that he basically has a fastball that doesn't have a lot of velocity or any movement and a pitch that no one knows what it is because it's not a curveball. It's kind of a changeup. It might even just be a, a weird sinker. The guy comes to the mound every single day with not much to give, and he gives everything that it is, but it's just not enough to face Nolan Arenado 
for a second time in a game. That was like not, that was so frustrating to see him get up against Nolan Arenado. And he actually got ahead of him very early too. Like, what was it, one, two? And then he kind of had that like sort of not really foul tip, which Yeah, the fake the fake foul ball, which, which like I don't we'll never know. You can't really tell, yeah. but this even feels weird talking about this based on how many things have happened in Mets land in the last three days, like since Monday. So many. It feels like a, an, an age ages ago. A doubleheader, a rain out, a coach being fired, but still to talk about Lucchese, like that third inning when shit fell apart was just kind of weird because like I said, like as a left-handed pitcher, he shouldn't, he shouldn't have been facing, had to face Arenado at all. I would say I probably would have thrown a righty to start that game. But to get in that at bat, also with oh, the play, the the play before Goldschmidt dinked in a single, and for some reason the outfield was playing very far back. It seemed to be no doubles, which to play no doubles in the third it's inning insane. is it's kind of bizarre. You can hit a double, that's fine, it's okay. that's really okay. And then even when it got to three two, when he threw that pitch, like just don't throw Nolan Arenado a fastball. Like where do you want to put that fastball? Like I don't get even it. Even then it actually was worse. It was one two still. It wasn't even three two yet. He was still ahead in the count. He kind of threw in again like that weird churve, I think, and we saw him crank one foul, which he just missed by inches, of course, because he was a little early on the churve. And I think even Ron or whoever was doing the game at the time was like, Oh boy, he just missed that one. And it felt oh, like Keith, Keith. No, no, no Ron these games. Keith. Okay. So Keith was saying that. And it felt like everybody knew that that was a, like, there's such thing as a good foul ball, which is, like, kind of weird to say, but when you see someone as good as Nolan Arenado hit a foul ball like that behind in the count, you go, I don't got a good feeling about this, and then he threw the next pitch, and he just obliterated it, which if it seems so obvious. You saw Lucchese against Arenado, who's a guy he's faced so many times in his career, too. Like, it just, from any way that you looked at Lucchese facing Arenado, or even Goldschmidt, a guy who he would have faced a decent amount in his career, too, being a former Diamondback, it made no sense to have him in there for a third inning, especially when we've seen him pitch all year long, and every single time he gets the second time through the lineup, he struggles. Every time. Literally. And I want to harp on this. I want to say it again. I don't understand why a right-handed, heavy lineup like the Cardinals, why we would attack them with a left-handed pitcher. Who? The fact Who that Gazelman has... Like Matt Carpenter? They, Carpenter's a lefty, and uh, Carlson's a switch. And I think Edmonds a switch. But Goldschmidt's righty, Arenado's righty, Tyler O'Neill's righty, Matt Killer, Paul DeYoung is righty. All of the best power hitters in that lineup besides Carlson are right-handed bats. And the way that Sean Reed Foley looked in his first appearance of the year, the way Gazelman had looked in the previous week, even including this series, and just the fact that Yamamoto existed, which we saw him pitch okay recently, which we'll get to later, I, th- I didn't understand the idea of having a left hand to start this game. It made it, it made no sense. And it's even stupider because the entire Cardinals rally happened just because the Mets were stubborn, particularly Rojas. And since his spot was leading off the next inning, it seems like they really just wanted to use a pinch hitter rather than bring in a reliever, possibly make a double switch as early as the third and have to burn an extra guy on the bench because the Mets have been playing with a short bench with injuries to most of the regulars without being put in the DL, IL. My, my, my mistake. It just, it's the whole thing was very avoidable. Very, very avoidable. Especially in a game when the Mets got up to a lead. Yeah. The Mets get so many early inning leads this season. And Pilar had a heads up play in the second. He took second base. He's been playing great baseball. We kind of ragged on him a little bit early on. But wow, he has. To, to our own or credit, we also did say we're ragging on him now. But we wouldn't be surprised that he does something good in a couple weeks. And what do you know? He had a great series. 
And to our credit, just to continue to pipe our own horn, we were very happy about the signing in the offseason. Thought it was a great depth move, and it's proved to be. But yeah, the great heads-up play, taking second on uh, on, a, on a play where the ball went to a cutoff man, I believe. That forced Mike Schill to intentionally walk VR, and then the Mets got some cheapo runs on a Nito hit by pitch, and then McNeil bases loaded walk, which the bases loaded walk. We should just name this podcast the bases loaded walk because that's the only thing the Mets do. The Mets but love again, to just, walk yeah. with guys on runner, runners in scoring position. Love a good walk. Yeah, so it just sucked to have that early lead and to put some runs on the board for the like for what felt like a very rare occasion, and then to just give it up immediately and then just stop hitting the rest of the game. And it really would have felt like if we got through that inning clean, that the Mets probably would have honestly, I felt like break, broke that game open and just kind of been cruising the whole way. Because when Reed Foley came in again, did a great job. He's looked really strong. Really strong. He was cruising. Reed Foley, they mentioned it in the broadcast, but apparently he's hooked up with Hefner and he has convinced him to throw his four-seamer higher in the zone. Doesn't have a lead velocity, but has above-average spin, above-average ride. It looks it looks good there. And he plays just the two pitches, the fastball and the slider, and it plays very well in this multi-inning kind of like cleanup role. It's great. It looks like it's something that's like moderately sustainable, which is pretty cool. And same thing with him. One time through the order, and that's what they do. They give yeah. them the one time through Perfect. the order. You got to be smart with these guys because the reason that they haven't had success in other scenarios is because they're not being used the right way. If you want to have two pitch pitchers go through the lineup once, they can be fine. That's when it comes down to them and their actual quality of pitching, you know, understanding the game. But the second time through the order, these guys are just too talented to go up against dudes who only have two pitches. And let's be honest, both of their two pitches aren't plus by any means. Yeah, definitely. And it just then it becomes somewhat of a guessing game whenever you get behind in the count. And generally, if you're in one of these roles, it means your command isn't good enough to actually be starting the game. So you will, more often than not, find yourself behind in counts. And good hitters are going to figure it out. The Mets actually planned their pitching super well in this game with Reed Foley, Gazelman, and Lucchese. It was just a couple batters too long in Lucchese's part. If they would have gotten Gazelman and Reed Foley in there ahead of time, this would have gone off very smoothly. And it's actually a good blueprint for bullpen days that we might see for the next couple of weeks or any time that... We're down a star there. It, I, I didn't feel bad about it because Elman looks good. That's a really good positive spin to it is that like, yes, it didn't necessarily work, but we see the reason why it didn't and it's so fixable. No, and just the idea that the Mets are employing a strategy like this that's a little bit innovative and creative. I think it bodes well rather than actually just battle through Lucchese and let him throw six innings and he gives up six runs. Yeah, the Sensatella special. Yeah, the Sensatella special. Oh my goodness. Please, no Sensatella specials. But that game overall, weird and... Like like you said, Gesamen looked good. He's surprised me because he was someone I kind of wrote off a little bit during the offseason and spring training. I just thought Gesamen was the odd man out, and if he wasn't a part of this team, I wouldn't sweat it. Definitely. I feel like everybody did, but the guy is just a cat. Like He will not die. It's crazy how many lives Robert Gesamen has. And it's funny because the first two weeks of the season, no one heard his name once. He didn't even warm up to relieve. And now it seems like he's warming up every couple of days. Like He's actually an active part of this bullpen which is kind of weird how that could change so quickly but as long as it works it's, it works and so far he has looked really good so credit to him a lot of decent little pickups there in the bullpen but just it, it really just came down to that lucchese inning that was kind of the difference maybe yeah, that was in that a, game just that one batter really just the back-to-back between goals from Arenado, and i think kind of underestimated in preseason pre- thinking how much two dominant hitters would work in the middle of a lineup like that but those guys over and over again this series just like it's tough to get those guys out in a row those are two of the more i don't want to say like 
talented, but I think like more balanced hitters, I feel like in baseball, they're just like, they both have good eyes at the plate. They both put the ball in play pretty consistently and they'll both take the ball to like all fields. They're not just dead pull hitters. They'll hit it to right, they'll hit it to left, they'll spray it around. They have the ability to do a lot offensively and they're both just extremely comfortable at the plate. They never seem like they're behind or imbalanced, unbalanced. Yeah, I'm going to give two great baseball quips right here. They're both very good at taking what the pitchers give them. They're very good at that. They love taking what they give them. And those two are both professional hitters. Yes, that's those are that's I couldn't have said it better myself. Professional hitters. Is Keith Hernandez the new co-host of this? I think you would have loved that. It feels right <laughs> oh, out of man. his book. I've been, I listened to a lot of Keith these last couple of days. Keith, just as a quick aside, was gushing over this Cardinals team. Gushing over Which them. Which you shouldn't be, by the way. It felt like he wanted to just stay in St. Louis. Like it's just like Gary, just leave him there. Yeah, he'll announce some. Car- he'll do a month with the Cardinals, take a sabbatical, sow some oats. Keith, Keith was Talk- feeling a little bit of Cardinal love though because he got inducted into the Cardinals Hall of Fame. Yeah, as well, he definitely, which, that's he awesome. definitely was. Did you? It was awesome. By the way, did you see his Hall of Fame like his plot in in uh, the outfield? I didn't. It's hilarious because the Cardinals, the St. Louis Cardinals Hall of Fame, is sponsored by Edward Jones, which I think is like a financial company. And Keith Hernandez is written in like these tiny little letters right there, like size 14 font. And it says Edward Jones in size like 24. And he's like, I would have forked over a little bit of cash to get my name bigger. People are going to be going to see like, who's this Edward Jones guy who got put into the Hall of Fame? I don't remember him playing. Yeah, but Keith, I don't know. If I were the Mets, I would like give Keith a side eye right now. Because, hey, he was getting along a little too well with the St. Louis Cardinals. I don't like that. And that's just like, that's such a team that like would have probably been great. Like in the 1970s and 80s, the way that they play baseball. Like Tommy Edmond, you'd be freaking Hall of Famer by then. Edmond actually looks kind of good this year. He's better than I thought he was. He's hitting the ball much harder than he ever has. He's put on a little muscle. Yeah, he's. I think he actually he got he went from like career utility guy to like this guy might be a second base. Okay, there you go, there you go, Cardinals fans. If you're listening to this, yeah, good for him. And that, that that's the end of my. Com- I have one more compliment for the Cardinals, but I'll save it for the end of the show. Sure. And then, but I think yeah, let's talk about after game know. one because that's where the real news came in here. Chili Davis canned right off right after the game, like 11 p.m. Like how how weird is that? Even later, and apparently, like. So you told me something a little bit earlier, and I'll, I'll let you talk about it, but like nobody seemed to know originally. No, it seemed like it was a secret to the team at least. But the other strange part is that this, this decision was made pregame in St. Louis. So after, I don't, I don't know if we ever found out if Chili Davis was actually in the dugout on Monday night. I'm sure people would have been aware if he wasn't. But on an interview with WFAN the next day with Evan and Carton, Rojas said that management told him before the game that Chili Davis was being fired after the game. Then why not just let him go? I guess you don't want a team who doesn't want to play like that. But that's a very weird... How can you manage a game when you know the coach possibly sitting a few feet to your right is about to lose his job? Also, why bring him to St. Louis then? If he did come with the team. It's inhumane. That's the Jerry Manuel special. That's the Willie Randolph special. Yeah, it was right. Was it possibly well, was both? Jerry was. took over for Willie, but Willie got yeah, fired yeah. on that trip from L.A. I think. Yeah, the Angels. Uh, the overnight flight at like, hey, two a.m. Yeah. Uh, Willie, you're gone. Oh, uh, thanks. Cool. <laughs> but that's what happened here too. We didn't hear about this until almost midnight in the East Coast, and it just it's really weird for the front office the way they're handling Rojas' situation to tell him before the game that he was firing, not ask his opinion, not see what he thought. And not even that they're linked to the hip and they're both being fired, that he was like, if you're killing one of my coaches, you're getting me too. Like, seemed like there, seemed like there were a couple independent entities working here in this Mets dugout this season, which could have attributed to the poor hitting. The writing on the wall for me seems like Rojas is on the hot seat. It seems Very like Chile so. is the warning shot, a little bit like we saw with uh, Island and Mickey Calloway. I think that Rojas and Chile Davis are kind of in that same regard here, where... You know, Chile 
the players loved him. The players love Rojas. I think they're saying, Chile's gone first. There's your warning. Get this team back together. Get them in shape, and you're going to be fine. But if this team continues to underperform, you're next. We'll fire someone 20 games into the season. Guys that people love. Guys who A guy who has helped our offense be one of the better ones in the league. Guys like Pete Alonso and J.D. Davis. He's turned into great hitters, as you mentioned in previous episodes. I, like, I saw a tweet, and it was something about how Mets fans didn't want to blame Chili Davis despite all the stuff that was in front of them that was so blatantly wrong. And I think I also fell into that same category because I, I did like Chile. I thought that he did great stuff back in 2019. Even the team hitting in 2020 statistically did well. Of course, we still know the runners in scoring position is a huge problem. Maybe he doesn't have the most modern take on the game. But it sounds like everything that, or all the reasons they got fired for wasn't necessarily because he wasn't a good hitting coach or that he wasn't capable of doing his job, but it was more so that it seemed like the Mets and Zach Scott was really disappointed in the preparation that the Mets were coming into games with. Yeah, definitely. Chili Davis, as we've spoken about a few times, comes from the old school of baseball coaching. And I don't think that's the type of team that Steve Cohen, Zach Scott, Sandy Alderson want to be putting out in the field. Like, it seemed like this was a weird realization I had the other day, but I feel like just to tie back to all the shit that Brody did for a quick moment in time, while he hired a lot of analytic people who were kind of smart, cunning, industry-liked personas, he also did this thing where he hired baseball people so it's kind of like he like wants to like create like this half and half for this like 75 25 situation where we're going to be analytic and we're going to be smart but like we don't want to be too smart like we got to have a couple baseball guys here to even everything out and that seems like the worst way to do something like that and it's also telling because the new hitting coach who quadlebaum is very much not that i did a deep dive on quadlebaum over these last couple days i wanted to tell some really funny stuff for the listeners at home i told mark before the show give me a couple minutes on quadlebaum because this guy has an interesting interesting background take 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 front stage here james we're giving you the quadlebaum forum for the for our viewers <laughs> great i love that but Quadlebaum, I very hard to find information on the guy, so I stalked his LinkedIn. Nice, pretty pretty hardcore. Nice. And this guy was he was a baseball player at Amherst. He ended up playing Major League Baseball. But yeah, while he was in college, he was a liberal arts major, dual with a Spanish uh, major. So that's a thinker. I kind of fuck with a thinker. That's a guy who likes to think about things, consider things, hears all perspectives. He understands information, knowledge. That's cool. He had a quick cup of coffee in the majors, four or five years, Tigers and Orioles, pretty bad franchises, yada, 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 this and that. After he left the league, he actually took a job in like the private sector for a year. He was a production assist- assistant at E! Network. <laughs> e? The entertainment e, news? E, 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 exclamation point. Wow weird okay, bizarre like and then it. he it seems like he did that for a year and was like just this can't just got back into baseball seems like that was a very quick move he made he was a volunteer assistant coach at a community college in los angeles for two seasons immediately after this so this man after playing in the major leagues with a college degree left a job that probably was making him decent money to grind as a community college assistant coach that's a baseball guy that's huge i love that and then it seems like that kind of reignited his passion, or maybe he learned some things, some tricks. That was kind of at the same time when, like, data in baseball was starting to become a thing in the like the late two thousands. That's not not like closer to three thousand, but like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, whatever. He became a private hitting instructor. He had a conditioning based program uh, company. I forgot what the name was, but he went to people and privately trained them. He used those connections, worked his way up through like club and youth coaching all the way through those ranks until he was an analyst at Duke, hitting analyst for Duke University, a pretty good baseball program in 2016. 
Then he caught the job from after one year at Duke as the Mariners hitting coordinator, which I think is the LinkedIn term for hitting coach, unless he was an organizational coordinator, which is possible. Because then he was hired by the Mets this offseason to be the director of hitting for the entire organization. That is a crazy, crazy job. That's very information-based. You have to understand the way the physical science work. You have to understand video analytics. That is a serious, serious gig. And it almost feels like becoming the major league hitting coach is a step back from that role, which is kind of funny because it seems like they might just be in a pinch and will re, re-lift Quadlebaum up in the offseason to a more organizational director-type role unless he takes well with the major league team. But I thought... That was a very interesting background and very, very, very different from Chili Davis's. Yeah, no, I think it even goes back to the whole thing of like preparation too. Like you said, like to be a coordinator of an entire organization and you have to be able to watch a video and be able to dissect that video and break it down because if you're directing the hitting philosophy for an entire organization, you're not just talking about Major League Baseball. You're talking about the 16-year-olds we get from the Dominican Republic. You're talking about the first-round draft picks from college. Like, there are so many different things that you have to be able to handle. So clearly it seems like the Mets trust that this guy has an idea of what hitters should be doing or what hitters should be looking like and what their approach should be in order to be in the best place to be successful. So I really like that. I think they also did mention that this is just going to be interim for him. I think I think it's very much accepted that he's going to go back to his full-time role after the season. They'll get someone else to be there. So yeah, just think about the word you use there, philosophy. Like this guy's handling hitting philosophy. Like that is a that's a wide ranging concept. That's a very difficult job to handle. And this goes into a little bit of the Donnie Stevenson uh, talk now because you put it like it makes the Donnie stuff a little weird now because. Donnie Stevenson was clearly like an indirect shot at Chili Davis. It felt like it had to be right. Possibly a ricochet shot. The whole like the team hasn't really mentioned him much now in these last two three days since Chili was let go. There's been not much less more on social media. Nothing else with interviews after the games. That was a weekend too. So guys are having some fun. I get that, but it's gotten kind of mum with the Donnie Stevenson front, which is a little bit bizarre. It's just weird that they were so Donnie Donnie Donnie. And then Chili got fired and everyone was upset. All the players were hurt. And that's understandable. Like, I'm sure you like the guy. Whatever he is as a hitting coach, it seems like as a man in in the clubhouse, everybody seemed to enjoy his presence. But the whole Donnie thing almost feels like it was a shot at Chili, even though he was their guy. I don't know. It's so bizarre. It it could even have been like an innuendo that Chili made to be like, oh, y'all don't think... Like, these guys see what goes on in the media. Everyone hears everything. Yeah, like, this... I'm not, I don't... Like, we don't, prefer, we don't have a good approach. Like, here's an approach coach. Let's make up an approach coach. Him with Chili. Good. I don't know. It's just very peculiar. And even after game two of this series now, which we'll get into next, they asked Rojas about what it was like for the team to start hitting a little bit. Or that was game three because it was after the second game of the doubleheader or maybe in between the doubleheader I don't remember exactly but they talked to me Ross talked to the media and he specifically mentioned the team had a better approach which is something that you haven't really heard Rojas talk about all year no I don't think I've ever heard that word come out of Rojas mouth and that's probably nothing but that's a little bit weird like I don't like Rojas has seen the writing on the wall now he's a savvy guy he's been managing teams for a long time albeit not in the major leagues not in New York his father was a very accomplished major league baseball manager this is something that this is very Mets. This is very Mets. These weird like things going on. These like sideshow acts, which I was really hoping wouldn't be a part of the Mets anymore. I even like texted you about this, and I was like, the Sandy Alderson like regime now is just it's getting more and more confusing. I feel like yeah, it seems kind of weird. Just seems kind of weird because because now, now it seems like Zach Scott because he 
was is he been announced as the full-time GM or they said that he's going to eventually step back and do a little bit less and they're going to get someone to fill the actual role that Jared Porter was supposed to have? Yeah, I truthfully don't even know. I don't even recall. And it place. seems like Zach Scott is basically taking the bull by the horns here and saying, fuck this shit, I'm doing what I want to do now. Because it seems like he wanted Chili out and he wanted the Slater, Slayton, I don't even know what his name is, guy out. And he put in the dudes that he feels are, are uh, you know capable of doing the job. The Mets front office as good as we thought it was going to be has been a little murky i don't know it's been a little confusing yeah i think i think the moment that your general manager is fired on like right just with your backup against spring training it kind of signals that there's going to be a little bit of haphazardness in your front office for at least this coming season we knew this going in i didn't really think it'd be in the forefront with strong ownership like steve cohen and with a team that i thought would be playing much better but when a team's playing poorly, people look around, people need to write stories, people need to talk about stuff. These kind of things are going to be an issue at least until this team gets hot. And there's no way to get around that. Something to keep an eye out for is just what the decision-making is going to be is because now it seems like the philosophy is clear, analytics. We're going analytical. Yes, we're going data, information. This is going to be a cutting-edge 21st century baseball team for now and forever, and I support that, honestly. I, listen, if it wins me baseball games, which it does for a lot of other teams, I'm cool. So win, win us games, play better baseball, let's do it. Which leads us now into game two, which wasn't better baseball. Not better baseball. No. This game was gross. Bad Seriously game. Gross. Like, Kwang Young Kim looked about as uncomfortable as a starter has really looked in a long time against the Mets, but also didn't get hurt. Yeah, it was it was such a lock that Kwang Young Kim was going to just keep the Mets at bay. Like, that was so going to happen. I also want to say about this game, I'm tired of the doubleheaders. I really, I'm, I start, I'm starting to really not like the seven inning thing. I never, I was kind of indifferent to it. I was like, whatever, get more games in, keep arms off the pitcher, keep innings off the pitcher's arms. That's okay. But there's like this weird palpable stress that begins in like the bottom of the fourth in a seven inning game. Where you're like, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel. You're trying to like do the ratios in your head. Like, how many innings do I have left? What inning is this in nine? I don't like it. It all happens much too quick yeah the fourth inning should never be stressful in a baseball game and the fact that that's basically the halfway point is torture absolute torture, torture. it just feels very weird i just it feels I, rushed not, and baseball is not a rush sport it feels very rushed things are happening too quickly i don't I, the fourth and the fifth inning are supposed to be like a calm walk in the park like some kind of matinee like people are supposed to be lax in the fourth and fifth inning that's supposed to get into the game before the later innings it's it's too much happening but yeah, one cool thing that happened, I think Marcus Stroman listened to this podcast because he heard what I was saying about using a slider more, and he focused on that pitch with one of his best outings of the year in Game 2. He threw 48 sliders the other day. That's a lot. More than any of his pitches. That's so Way many. a lot. Almost 49% of the total pitches he threw, so 48, 49, he almost threw 100, yada, 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 whatever. Big slider guy. And I love that. He got nine whiffs on the slider over 26 swings. That's 35% clip. That's a, a sink, elite for one single pitch. Elite. And he still was loving the sinker. Slider into the sinker made up 84% of his total pitches. Worked. Got soft contact with the sinker. Got whiffs with the slider. Worked incredibly. I'd still love, love to see him use the four-seamer more. He threw it, I think, four or five times. He got two swings on it. Both those swings were whiffs. That's a piece. I'd love to see it incorporated. Let him come with his own rate pace. He's doing good things. He knows what's going on. 
Strom has been a big boon to this team so far this year. He's not got enough credit. No, he's he's looking really strong, and just even more credit to Jeremy Hefner. Again, he keeps sprinkling his magic all over these pitchers, and you can tell they come now to the Mets or wherever Jeremy Hefner has been now in the last three years, including with the Twins, and you see he just makes pitchers better. And how awful the Twins pitching has been since he left is kind of Terrible. interesting to they see. They stink this year. Terrible, awful team. I might, I just kind of had a brain blast. I've been thinking about getting a new Mets jersey recently. Lindor is a little too cold to buy the jersey right now. I might get a Hefner get jersey. Get a Hefner jersey, throw it I'm back. sure I can find one of those. I support the coaching staff. Yes. I love the coaches. You get a quaddle bomb, too, while you're at it. Why not? I might get the quaddle bomb, too. I'll, I'll run with the pitching coach and the hitting coach. If this team starts hitting with quaddle bomb, this guy's showing good process. This, those are my guys. I'm really confident the Mets two positional coaches right now. Yeah, it's definitely good signs. We also saw Jacob Barnes look good again. Good. He looks good. Jake, something is actually happening in Jacob Barnes. Maybe this I guy really... just needed to throw. Maybe that's all it was, is that 10-day... Well, actually, let's say this. Shocker. 10 days off in between appearances is not good for a pitcher. You really could have fooled me, but that cutter he has is it's freaking cutting. I think it's cutting. That It's basically a slide at this point, but he still throws at like almost 90 miles an hour. Like He touches 90, 80, 89 sometimes, so it's kind of like the new slutter where it's like more controllable than a slider, but cuts a little more than a cutter, but it's still classified as a cutter, and it breaks almost three inches more than league average cutter. He, yeah, he, almost six inches of break, 5.8 exactly, which is the 11th most for any cutter in the league, a few spots ahead of you, Darvish, who has a very good cutter. Yeah, like th- this actually, this is a little pitch. This is a little pitch. This guy could be something competent the rest of the season, which is mad. Yeah, we want this guy to be bad, or good as you know, much as we gave him crap in the beginning of the season the for being terrible slip. and said he was awful and didn't want to see him again, keep proving me wrong, Jacob Barnes. I would love to be wrong oh, yeah. about you, please. It was, an emo- it was an emotional response. It happens. It's we're Mets fans. We're gonna we're gonna slip up every once in a while. But the big slip up of this game, of course, and I just ah oh, God, I'm, I hate this so much. I hate to even bring it up, but Lindor's error, yep. man. Oh. Yeah, it's a backbreaker. Real backbreaker. He is like, I love him. I still love Francisco Lindor, but oh man, it's just, it's not good in Francisco Lindor, New York Mets town right now. It's not good at all. That error sucked. And he kind of saw like the whole team deflate, like kind of with Francisco when that happened. Because he, not that he's emotional either yet, he hasn't been here long enough, but everyone wants him to do better. Everyone knows how seriously he's taking these struggles. Like it's very clear that he's wearing this his play on his sleeve on a daily basis, as he will wear the good play when that happens. And that was just such a bad error and they got burned for it. Yeah, I mean the de- young home run is lock in a in a Mets yeah, series. It was gonna happen. We definitely called it I think we called six home runs. So we under he understepped our projections, which we lost four innings of baseball, so there's no telling how many he would have hit. But that was just that was so gonna. Ha- that was just so gonna happen. That one felt more obvious than the Arenado home run after the fake foul ball. Yeah, that was that was the nail in the coffin. That was the all right. Move on to game two. You know, game two of the doubleheader. Game three of the series. I'm done with this game. That's pretty much it. There wasn't many redeemable things from game two. As we said, it was just a gross game. Now, game two of the doubleheader, we got some interesting stuff. We saw the first ever use of an opener, really, for the Mets with Miguel Castro. And then we also got to see Jordan Yamamoto make his Mets debut. And that's your boy, of course. So I know you want to talk about him. Yeah, another one of my boys. I mean, I I have no idea how it worked in this game. It just worked. We put out a punt lineup, and we we had Jordan Yamamoto following Miguel Castro, which none of that makes sense from a baseball perspective. If you use that configuration outside the park baseball, you'd get annihilated. 10 times out of 10, but it just, it just freaking worked. I, I, I thought it was weird to use Castro as the opener rather than a different reliever just because he's one of the better relievers, and I would like to use him in like a high leverage spot in like the 6th or 7th innings of the game like this, but it worked. It worked. Whatever. It worked. Don't care. Yamamoto found a way. My guy. I have no clue how. I think it's funny that he's still using his Marlins glove 
with the meds. Genesis Cabrera was doing the same thing today where he had a teal glove. And you're like, oh, former Marlin. It's like you can pick the guys out of a lineup, which is funny. But in two and third thirds innings, two and two thirds innings, Yamamoto only got two whiffs, which is like shockingly low. Yeah, he just doesn't have stuff to get whiffs. Yeah, he gave up four hard hit balls, which is very high compared to those whiffs in those innings. That's an unsustainable unsustainable way to pitch but which is cool very different than what we talked about with reed foley and lucchese is he mixed mixed sit why well, mixed he mixed it he mixed six pitches in just two and two-thirds innings that's a shocking number of pitches. well that's kind Doesn't of make what's sense. kept yamamoto relevant or around in major league baseball is that okay he doesn't have any plus pitch by any means not even close everything is about average or worse but he has six of them so he does keep you on your toes a little bit there it's crazy. You kind of need to do shit like that when your stuff isn't very good. Like, he's not Kevin Gaussman who throws two pitches and has become one of the better pitchers in baseball because one's a 98-mile-an-hour fastball and one's a splitter that starts at your belt and ends at your toes. Like, that's not what Jordan Yamo is going to do. But, like, even the first two pitches he threw of the game, it was very interesting. It was a right-handed hitter and a right-handed pitcher. He threw a two-seamer and, like, a cutter or a slider. He put them in the exact same spot on the outside corner, and one, it was against Tyler O'Neill, and one just barely nicked the corner, called strike, and the one faded away for a string strike. And I was like, oh, this guy's crafty. I'll give him the crafty label as of right now, and this is a novelty that could actually work for not for a short period of time. Now, I'm not sure how your Yamamoto's final line look here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look it up as we're going, but... I know in the past he's had huge control problems. And for a guy, again, who doesn't have good stuff, that's kind of where you go, what do you do for me? What did he end up doing control-wise in this game? Did he, like, walks-wise because I he... I think he had one strikeout, if I'm not mistaken. He actually did not walk a single batter in his two and two-thirds innings, which is great there because he has that's been huge. a guy who has had issues with walks. For his career, he's like a 1-4 whip. I mean, you, you, he gives up a lot of hits. But he also gives up a lot of walks. I mean, he had a 5.6 walk per nine in 2020, 4.1 in 2019. That's unsustainable for a guy who doesn't strike guys. The the interesting thing is, if you look back at Yamamoto in the minor leagues, he did not have many walks ever until he got to double A and he was having like two-ish three. But he maybe could settle into a way. We're talking about Jeremy Hefner sprinkling the fairy dust. A little bit of fairy dust. Guys through three innings a week. Three innings a week, Jordan. Three innings a week in games that aren't particularly close. I'm cool with that. Yeah, or in just games where we just need to get lucky because we got, kind of got lucky in this game. The bad, the bench hitters, bench hitters hit. Yeah, no, the bench hitters hit. We got Villar, Pilar, all the guys. I did it again. That that VR home run was ridiculous. That was I, he. <laughs> he. I don't know where he, he found made that a, baseball. Also but made a sick play at the end of the game too. He made a couple sick plays. I think those are the Derek Jeter specials where you don't have a lot of range. So when you go in the hole and show off the arm, it looks really cool, but really it's not that cool because he made an error today. Where I was like, I would today Thursday afternoon. I don't know when you're listening to this. Probably Friday for the listeners at home. But you were just waiting for the VR error to come, waiting for it all year. The guy's just historically not a great fielder. But like, one thing I kind of want to touch on in Game Three a little bit is Tomas Nito. He's um, that's kind of my guy. He's been hitting kind of well. Yes, and we talked about it in a previous episode. He had been a good hitter in the minors before. He was regarded as a good hitting catching prospect when he was younger. He's always looked not particularly great at the plate. Uh, you know, the last three seasons with the Mets, but we saw a little bit of it last year. He was swinging the bat a little better, and he's continued in 2021. Doing something. He puts the bat on the ball. Like, I wouldn't hate him getting more at that. I was just about I, to say I, that. I was like, the way McCann is playing offensively, you got to get Nito, I think, a few more at-bats until he's, until he proves otherwise, get him more at-bats. James McCann has always been a platoon catcher his entire career. I don't know how we could have possibly thought that we should give him, like, a 
120, 130 game role and he would succeed in it. He's a great defender. Nito's also a great defender. These guys both receive the ball very well. It seems the pitching staff likes throwing to both of those guys. But Nito's just putting more bat in the ball right now. And McCann, so help me God, he has come up with the bases loaded in every single at bat this season. Every it's single one. It's unbelievable. It's like. It's freaking crazy man for some reason the eight the eight spot is just hot for bases uh, loaded this year with the it's Mets. a hotbed and it's unbelievable the thing with Nito too that's also been really good this year is i saw it on twitter and I'll, I'll maybe throw it on the screen if i remember when i'm editing this but i think he has the highest called strike rate in the league among catchers and they showed like his framing has been impeccable he's been fantastic behind the plate as someone who loves framing porn essentially he's been really really good at it and even mccann's been you love strong. framing porn do you put it, like in your room yes. or like the living room Actually, you guys can't see it but the hallway. All, all these frames around yeah. uh there but interesting but catcher framing ooh, Mike likes framing porn gets, it gets me going it gets me gets me all riled up and he's been framing the ball beautifully i, lo- I love a good framing he's if if you're not going to do something offensively, which he has been, but if you're not going to give me something with the bat, you got to give me something with the glove, and he's been doing it. Both sides. Definitely. McCann does that too, but this funny little stat about Nito from perusing his baseball savant for about 10 seconds. He had the best pop time in Major League Baseball in 2019. Tom, Tomas Nito. I like that. That's kind of cool. That's good. Pop time is, top, pop time is important, especially when we used to have catchers like Darno and Ploiecki, who physically could not throw out a runner if you put them 10 feet away from second base. So it's good. And this is like a weird, like very small scale argument here, but Nito is 27 years old right now. So if you're going to get years out of like peak years out of Nito while you, he's under team control this year, next year, the year after that, this is when he should be getting all the at-bats in his entire career. So just give him a couple. Just give him a couple. He's free. Also, we haven't talked about it. Um, Jacob deGrom? Yeah, we didn't talk about it. I don't want to talk about it because I'm assuming he's pitching Sunday. Every All signs are pointing he's pitching Sunday. It seemed like, I put out a tweet about this, but the lat that he said was bothering him it seems like it could have been a reason that he couldn't like tighten his side and his shoulder was flying in his last start and even though he was still great that's just not something you want to put a lot of stress under right now as he also he's a perfectionist he doesn't want to go onto the mound when he's less than 100 percent. so skip the start whatever we won the bullpen game it's okay taiwan's been great we're gonna get to that in a second stroh's been great just get to Sunday. If he's gonna have a bullpen tomorrow, by the time you listen to this, probably we'll know. So this entire thing will be useless at that point. But <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's not a big deal. I was very scared when it happened, but it's fine. It's not a big deal. It's fine. And then we got Game Four, which happened today, and it was a day game. Taiwan getting another day game, which I know you you had a nice little meme on the Instagram there. Yeah, I don't think many of our listeners watch Always Sunny in Philadelphia, apparently. But Taiwan Walker is just the Mets' day man. He is the master of the sun. <laughs> fighter of the night man um he looked great again like i think all the concerns that you and i don't even want to call them concerns but all the things that you noted from the last start that you should keep an eye out for it looks like he answered all those questions yeah he did he continues to do that the guy we said episode after episode start to start he is a bulldog you could feel it in the first inning today which is much like his start on the during the home opener he was just dotting everything using mixing all four of his pitches in the first inning of the game which some pitchers like to do that some pitchers don't degrom wants to get through the lineup as many times as he can with less pitches a guy like taiwan without that kind of electric stuff he wants to use them all prove his control he struck out the side touched 96 and i just sat down I was like all right we're in for a treat today he rode that four seamer which the last couple starts I was looking for, and he did it. He also threw his uh, hardest fastball of the game today with a second-to-last pitch, which for a guy whose velocity has oscillated over the last couple of years, that's a very big deal. He still had the gas and his 91st pitch to pump there. I kind of want him to get a couple more innings. I would have thrown him out there to the 8th, possibly the ninth, but because he looked that great. 
He's like his whiffs were over 20%, which is pretty good. He gave up next to no hard contact, just three hard hit balls. Everything was working for him today. He looked just in co- in control. He even got a base hit. He even got a base hit. He, he got a pinch hit the other day, too, or he got a chance to pinch hit the other day. Taiwan, so to, to put it in completely different, you know, ideas here but when you watch the ground pitch and you watch him throw you go you you marvel in it you go wow this guy is just he's something special when you watch taiwan walker pitch that's like a drink of beer and get pumped or like yeah hit the zone let's go pump that fastball like he just gets me i don't know what it is but watching him throw strikes gives me a sense of enjoyment i get very excited and i'm like fuck yeah taiwan throw that shit like let's go i don't know what it is it's just it's the bulldog attitude of he just kind of comes barreling at you a little bit and you got to deal with it. And he's so far looked really, really good for the Mets. And definitely one of the better acquisitions that we've made in the offseason. Really, again, huge credit to Jeremy Hefner again. Huge credit to Jeremy Hefner. Jeremy Hefner is amazing. I love Jeremy Hefner. Can we? I cannot. You know how like we signed Francisco Lindor to 10-year, 341, whatever it was, million-dollar contract? Can we give Jeremy Hefner like a 10-year deal? Like whoever the manager yeah. is, he just stays. <laughs> Honestly, any, anything he wants right now, he just keep the, keep the guy if going. If Rojas isn't the guy, whoever it is, if, you, if your first move is to not keep Jeremy Hefner, we're going to have problems. He has to stay. He's unbelievable. <laughs> he wants to just be the manager. I look at You can do anything he wants. Maybe the general manager. I love that guy. I take that back. I'm not going to speak about another man's job. Rojas is fine. I don't know who's really pulling the strings. Yeah, 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 whatever. But Conforto seems to have also figured out his approach at the plate. He walked seven times this series. Actually, he might have been eight by the end because I took this note at like the second inning. He is a walking machine right now. I think his OPS is back to 800 or at least close to it right now. It is because his on-base percentage is already up near 800. So we're starting to see Conforto look a little bit more like himself. And that was the thing that we said at the beginning of the year was like he just... He wasn't comfortable at the plate. He was taking the wrong pitches and swinging at the wrong ones, where now it seems to be he still isn't hitting for power. He's still not necessarily getting those that gap shots that he's used to, but he's looking a lot more comfortable at the plate, which is a sign forward. Definitely, and no one's getting those gap shots that we're used to. Like, McNeil hit that rocket first pitch today, I think it was, off of uh, into center field, and Baylor just flagged it down, made an incredibly difficult play look easy. So no one's really doing it, but at least everyone is taking walks, which is a very strange consolation prize for this team hitting right now. Even as bad as Lindor has been, he finally got off the schneid today. Thank God Lindor broke the streak. But he's been on base in something like 16 out of 19 games or like 17 out of 20, some crazy amount of conse- like games he's been on base. So at least we're doing that. We're giving us the opportunity to score. We set the franchise record today for men left on base, which is not something you ever want to hear. I thought it was bizarre that we got around the lineup six times, like McNeil, Lindor, Conforto got six at, six at-bats, and we only had four runs. Four. I can't even fathom I, that. We had like 25 base runners today. I got off the plane today, and I opened up the box score, and I go, 36 left on base through eight, and I understand, like, technically you can't leave 38, 36 through eight. You can't even leave that through nine. But like the way that LMB.com and their box score does it is, you know, every single batter that comes up has an opportunity to leave X amount of guys on base. 36, no matter how you slice it, I don't feel like I've ever seen that number. I thought you were just being an asshole when you said that because that was a number that was impossible. No, it was literally, <laughs> I, I took a screenshot and replied to it with someone on Twitter. I was like, no, like LMB.com tracks every single batter. Like if there's bases loaded and you get an out, you left three on and then the next guy could leave three on. But it felt like every single guy at least came on, came up with guys on base we didn't come through again, but we ended up still winning the game, which is nice. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Lindor had three walks, three freaking and walks in one game. VR had two. Jonathan VR had two walks. The guy's allergic to walking. <laughs> He's allergic to walking. I, I, yeah, I love that line. You stole that from me? No, I stole it from Ernie. <laughs> uh, if you, I put that in a blogger for picture list today. <laughs> <laughs> allergic to walks. I love that shit. But the one guy whose approach still has not gotten there. 
He looks even worse to me than Francisco Lindor is Dominic Smith. Yeah, what happened, man? I referenced it a few episodes ago that we might have been in over our skis with Dom here, but he looks just completely lost at the plate. It was huge. He got that hit today. The only run-scoring hit that the Mets had all day in a win was Dominic Smith, which is super cool, but it was like a seeing-eye single. It was just a ground ball that found a hole, so he can't really take that with that much. But his at-bat in the third inning with the bases loaded was a disaster. He like swung at the pitch in the he like he swung at the pitch in the dirt and he swung at the pitch inside. It was awful. He did the same thing in the fifth with a three one pitch. He still drew, drew a walk. That's okay, but I don't know if he's I don't know if he's exactly who we thought he was last year. Dom is showing us the old Dom that we were all down on before he learned how to sleep again. Maybe he maybe he's maybe, <laughs> maybe he's, he's not, not traveling sleeping. with his sleep apnea machine, which if he's not he maybe forgot it. Yeah, maybe he left it on the road. I remember left that at home, but. I mean, like, he just, he feels a little off. He feels a little behind on everything. Doesn't feel as sharp as he was, and it's showing in his play and his numbers because his numbers are just, let's be honest, pretty pitiful right now. Yeah, awful. Really awful. And that's a guy especially that we when need you, to be clicking. Yeah, especially when you, like, add in the fact that his defense is, like, it's, like, barely average, pretty subpar, if we're being honest. His arm has been a little bit better than I thought, which is kind of funny. Yeah, but he needs to hit. He needs to hit like a middle of the order bat to keep a, like an everyday role. And he needs, especially when Nimmo comes back in a week or two, he's gonna have to prove it because the way the way Pilar is hitting, like there's a there's a reason there's a cause to give some more at bats to him right now. Yeah, I mean, ride the hot hand. He's definitely one of them for sure. We've we've talked about we don't we didn't want to see him get this many at bats, but if he's gonna play well, sure, keep keep rolling the dice until he stops. And he's had a lot of at-bats in recent years and done pretty well with them. So if it had to come to that, it's not the biggest deal. Like, I think right now, almost against lefties, he's a lock to play. I think against lefties. Yeah, definitely. And, like, he's he's never been, like, a very good hitter, but he's at least been near league average. And you couple that with pretty solid defense, although not spectacular anymore, that's, that's a guy who's worthy of a lineup spot. And just to talk about outfield defense, such a huge fuck you to the Cardinals outfield defense. They have incredible outfield defense. All three of those guys, O'Neill, Bather, and Carlson, are young, athletic, good arms. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Bather threw out, uh, I think it was Dom at home plate in game one, and we didn't run him the rest of the, the rest of the series. Didn't even consider it. Mets, Mets split the series. Mets split the series. Going into the series, we said, let's get a split. We got a split. That's fine. There's a good team. Got splits. Good split. Four games on the Hanging road. Around Hanging around 500. Hanging around 500, playing bad baseball. Yep. That's big. Hanging around, don't, let, don't let the mess hang around here. And Because I was going to say it would have been a good thing to get Carrasco back this weekend, but we learned this afternoon that's not going to happen. No, it seems like Carrasco is not doing well. Yeah. Well, it seems like he's doing fine. This also seems very old Mets, that within one hour, he was rumored to pitch on Sunday to... He's not going to pitch until May 31st at the Which earliest. also happened the last time that he was getting ramped up again to come back. Remember in spring training, they're like, oh, he's back now. He's good. And then he hurts himself in spring training immediately. It's a hamstring tear for a 34-year-old man. Like, that's all you need to know. This is a t- difficult injury to come back from. And even if the hamstring is getting near 60, 70, 80%, like, he still needs a spring training. He still has to ramp up and get all of his stuff to where it needs to be. He needs to be getting game shape. A hamstring, you can't do much conditioning at all. No, and... I'll give the Mets, you know, some slack here too. Carrasco was kind of the added bonus in the Francisco Lindor trade. We made that trade to get Francisco Lindor. We happened to get Carlos Carrasco along with him, which was a fantastic move because when he is healthy and on the mound, he would make a huge impact. We just don't know when that's necessarily going to happen. But I think 
if anyone's mad about trading for Carlos Carrasco and going, oh, here's another one of these guys, you know, get her like, pump the brakes a little bit here. It wasn't the Carlos Carrasco trade. It was the Francisco Lindor trade that also included Carlos Carrasco. Still an absolute steal for what we did. Definitely. And I had this take preseason, but you know that Carrasco is giving you 100 to 120 innings max. So the Mets don't want any chance of him to get such a serious injury that it would still push away that projection because he still can get a clean hundred innings given what we have left in this season like 135 games or something don't know the exact number and Mets pitching has not been the issue the Mets have the fourth lowest earned run average in baseball full staff like that's pretty serious stuff like we don't we're not in a situation where we need to be breaking our backs to get Carlos Carrasco back right now and that's a great luxury to have yeah no it's who would have thought that would have been something we were saying before we started the season that the offense is struggling and that the pitching is clicking on all cylinders, but I never even would have comprehended that. That is what's going on in the 2021 New York Mets world. Let's go ahead and, uh, Let's let's keep it positive here. We wanted to do some like monthly award type stuff here on the channel, on the podcast. I call it a channel because I'm so used to YouTube. Have we figured out a name for what we want to do for our award? I haven't figured out a name. The brain's not been working that well the last couple of days. I'm busy with a lot of stuff, but we're gonna get one. I'm gonna get one soon. It's gonna be the, I'm gonna think of some kind of pun, something stupid. It's gonna be funny. Hopefully, I hope honestly, probably you probably won't hear it if it's not funny. So that's why I got you, Mark. But I kind of just want to give this award. We've been talking a lot about Hefner this week. I wanted to give it to an actual player, even though I kind of want to give it to Hefner. But an unheralded hero for the Mets so far this season is Trevor May. That guy's been lights out, man. Like, what a signing by the team. Outside the first game, he really has had no issues. Yeah. And even that first game, there was kind of just some nonsense going on. Yeah, it was cold. It was windy. It was after the whole Fakakta Washington National Series. Like... There was a lot going wrong there. He hadn't pitched in a while. And since then, Trevor May has been exactly what we signed up for. And he has been a lights-out setup man leading us to Edwin Diaz, which has been fantastic. Yeah, definitely. And, like, I don't even know if he's necessarily, like, the sharpest right now. He's His, his control sometimes erratic, but he just gets everybody out. He makes the three pitches very well. Fastball change-up slider. He's pumping 98. It's good. I have tons of faith in Trevor May moving forward. He is our Met of the Month. Met of the Month. There, there we go. Met of the Month for April. Love it. Nice and simple, which leads us real quickly into the series that we got here because this has been a lengthy episode, but we also, you know, we haven't had a good deep long episode like this in a while. We got the Arizona Diamondbacks coming to Queens this weekend, which um, this is a team that we play. Yeah, Mets always seem to play Diamondbacks at the end of the season. It kind of feels weird to play them in May. There's not a May team for the Mets. The last time I remember the Mets playing the Diamondbacks in May was when Matt Harvey hit his first home run as a New York Met. Me and my dad at the game, my dad goes, hey, Harvey, how about you hit a home run here? Boom, home run. Weird weird call serious? by my dad to call Matt Harvey <laughs> that is hit a home run. run. That's a great call by Mr. Luino. It's also funny because Harvey's first ever start was against the Diamondbacks in Arizona, but that was an August game. Like I'm saying, this is an August team. And it's also funny because our next episode after this Diamondbacks series, we're going to be going up against Mr. Harvey, and we're probably going to have to touch on that for a moment or two, but just to stick with the Diamondbacks, we got to miss Jack Flaherty with the Cardinals, which was huge. We're not going to miss Zach Allen. He's pitching tomorrow, later today, if you're listening to this on Friday, against David Peterson. Yeah, so we got Peterson. We're probably going to see Lucchese again, mixed with Reed Foley, Gazelman, possibly Yamamoto. And then Sunday, hopefully Jacob deGrom. Hopefully that's okay. Jacob deGrom against this guy's name, who we're starting against on Sunday, is kind of hysterical. It's Riley. Oh, I thought it was a different guy. Never mind. Riley Smith. Who the hell is Just, Riley that's cre- Smith? That's cr- that's a creative player. That can't, can't like, be a real dude. That, that's computer generated. Riley Smith from Lufkin, Texas. Lufkin. Mm, nice. Yeah. It's all whole things out. Sounds like he some Friday Night Lights. Maybe baseball isn't the right sport there. But this Diamondbacks team kind of 
in, I don't even know how to put it, but there's just not a lot that scares you on this team. A lot like Carson Kelly's playing really, really good baseball, and I do think he is yeah, a good ripping, ca- ripping the cover. I do off think the he's ball. a good he's catcher. Great. Um, but he tends to destroy left-handed pitching more so than right-handed pitching, which doesn't bode well for Lucchese and Peterson, who are going to be playing. Um, I don't think Cattell Marte is back yet, right? No, he's still not back. And this team also just got swept by the Marlins, scoring three runs, zero runs, and one run in three games in a row. Yeah, I mean, like, Eduardo Escobar, who I know you're not a huge fan of, he him, him and Carson Kelly have been, like, the two offensive producers on this team this year. Everybody else has been pretty non-existent. I don't know, Eduardo Escobar hits, like, I think, five home runs the first two weeks of the season, and now he's sitting at seven, which is very Eduardo Escobar, do something like that. David Peralta's still a professional. The guy's good. We're going get to get to be reunited with the ass man as Drupal Cabrera this series. It'll be nice. I'll, I'll, I'll clap for as Drupal. Like as Drupal. He Same thing. He wanted to be traded, but also, like, I got why he wanted to be traded. And then and then he took it back, and he hit the big home run for us, and he's the man. Yeah, and he, he had, like, a weird month where he, like, wasn't self-aware and then became self-aware very quickly. And he's given himself an entire new level of his career since doing that, being a second, third base. And he's been hit. good. Yeah, he still hits. The guy still hits the ball. He's, he's on base right now is 370, which is pretty high. That's... He basically has a walker with him around the bases, but he can still swing the bat. Mm-hmm. Two two guys in the team. I want everyone, every, all their messed up listeners to be aware of this series. Paven Smith, or maybe Pavin. I think it's Paven, though. First... First baseman corner outfielder type. He's been playing a lot of first for the D-backs with Christian Walker out, fellow Gamecock. That's Mark's alma mater. But guy's a good hitter. He had good numbers in minor leagues. He's never had a spot. He's come up. He's had a nice little 267, 306, 457 slash. That's serious. And then Mark will know this is one of my boys. Josh Rojas has been ripping the cover off the ball for the last two weeks since he's really settled into the second base job. He's also playing a little bit of outfield, which that just shows the guy's versatility. He's a ball player. But the guy showed a little more power than I ever thought he had. He is a baseball player. Those two guys, if anyone in this back line is going to hurt you this week, it'll be as Drupal, of course, David Peralta, then Paven Smith, Pavin Smith, still don't know, and then Josh Rojas, and Carson Kelly, as you mentioned. And if you're the Mets, the key to beating the Dimebacks, of course, besides just being better, you are the better team, you got to get to this bullpen. This bullpen is horrendous. The arms that they have in Arizona shouldn't be on many Major League Baseball rosters. Throwing out guys like uh, Stephen Crichton, um, I mean, like <laughs> that's that's a, that's a fake that, name too. That's not a real person. You, can, you can't say the name Stephen Crichton without like sounding. Angry. All right, you know what? I'm gonna r- real quickly. I'm gonna look up who is currently pitching for the Arizona Diamondbacks because this. Oh no, I'll tell you right now. I have I have their bullpen pulled right, up right names. now. We have Joaquin Soria, he's which 70. is shocking that he's, he's still in baseball. Good, Chris, yeah, he's he's still fine. He's he's wily. He's one of those relievers that throws a couple pitches and yep. it works. Chris Davinsky who's never been good. He's like basically a whole decade of not being good. <laughs> Crichton, not good. Ginkle, who I thought was okay, not they good. Ginkle. Yeah, Caleb Smith, failed Marlin starter. He's actually been decent. He's a he's a good lefty out of the pen. Comes with the start of the repertoire into the bullpen. He's okay. Taylor Clark does something similar, but he's not very good at it. Matt Peacock, not good. And then the one guy who's decent, decent-ish, could be decent, potentially decent, J.P. Bukowskis. One of the big pieces from the, uh, the Zach Greinke trade from a few years ago, who another failed star there, moving to the pen. But you got to hit these guys. This is nonsense what I'm saying yeah, right there's, now. Yeah, there's nobody in that bullpen where you go like, you know, oh man, ninth inning, uh-oh, we're in trouble. It's like, oh, ninth inning, this game's a four-run game, we have a shot. Yeah, for me to highlight a couple hitters leading into the next series and not pitchers, that means this pitching yeah, sucks. You guys know <laughs> how much James loved to talk about some random pitchers, although your boy Garrett Whitlock has looked like crap the last few days, but he got shelled by the Tigers the other night. But Well, he got Candelaria. That's my yes, other guy, as you exactly. know. Exactly. Your boys are hopping around <laughs> the league everywhere. 
But uh, the Dimebacks, that's a series we got to win 100%. And I, I think we will. Yeah, just crush I really guys. do think we will. I think yeah. the Mets bats have been looking a lot more comfortable. We have good pitching that's been going strong. I'm feeling good about the series, and I'm excited to see the Mets at City Field again this weekend. James, I think that's going to take us to the end here of episode 12. This is uh, 100% going to be our longest episode yet. But since since the preseason since episode. the preseason episode, but listen, we haven't had an episode where I've been at my apartment, you've been at your house. It's been a while. We got comfortable. We talked Mets baseball. Yeah. It's good to be back. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to us here on the Mets Up podcast. You know where to find us on social media at Mets Up. Listen to us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, as well as YouTube Mets Up Podcast. You can search us up there. Doing new episodes after every single series this season. Thank you guys so much for the amazing support on all the episodes. And that's pretty much what we're going to wrap up today. Follow James. Jeter had no range. Follow me, Giraffe Neck Mark. And we'll see you all tomorrow. Tomorrow, episode 13. This isn't a YouTube video of the Mets Up Podcast. Bye.